0: The following is an on presentation of Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Uh, very often when people on the left, uh, you know, p- protest and make their case and they are convinced that they're the better way of taking down the right, the division on the left very often empowers the right.
1: There's all kinds of money to be had from big business here, so don't lean on us about coming up with a plan first. Give us the money, and we'll solve it. That's Robert Siegel, retired
2: host of National Public Radio's All Things Considered, followed by Mike Flynn, former publisher of the Puget Sound Business Journal. Robert and Mike will be joining me on this edition of Voices of Experience. of experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Robert Siegel was a very calming voice through very turbulent times of the last 30 years on national public radios, All Things Considered. I had the chance to sit down with Robert Siegel when he was on the campus of Washington State University to receive the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award. We talked about his career in radio and his views on world affairs. Mike Flynn, editor and publisher of the Puget Sound Business Journal for A Quarter Century, is also with me. I talked to him about what else are we talking about in this area right now, and that's the homeless crisis. What does he think about it? Does he have any suggestions about how we can make the situation better? I'm going to just also play a slice of Bill Maher from HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, his New Rules segment that airs on Friday nights. We'll be back with Robert Siegel in just a moment.
3: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit voicesofexperience.com and take a 5-minute self-employment quiz. That's voicesofexperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit voicesofexperience.com. All one word.
2: Had the opportunity to sit down with Robert Siegel. And, of course, he was the NPR's host of All Things Considered for over 30 years. He was on the campus of Washington State University recently. He was recipient of the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award. Two very monumental instances that occurred that had directly affected the United States. And one was the seizing of the American Embassy by Iranians in Tehran in 1979. And also the election of Ronald Reagan to the presidency. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about 1968. Very, very pivotal year in this country. It seems that many people believe that 1968 was truly a turning point for this country. I want to talk to Robert about that year,
0: 1968. Well, you know, between the Vietnam protests and the civil rights movement, this was what, this was the, I think, the biggest thing, which is um, uh, it had been evident uh, certainly to a lot of people who were not southerners in the U.S. and a lot of young people who were, that a system of racial segregation was wrong and that, uh, you know, uh, the the army had been desegregated in the Truman era or whatever and were just, uh, the schools were supposedly desegregated after 1954. So by 1968 you're getting what, um, you know, political scientists I think spoke of as a revolution of rising expectations. It, it wasn't so much that life was worse than it had been uh, twenty years earlier and hence people were protesting against it. It was that uh, life was better, but it was supposed to be even better than that. You know, it was supposed to be, we were supposed to be making a lot more progress and I think that um, those kind of sentiments in their own odd way uh, were felt in Warsaw and Prague as as well at the same time, and Paris. The movie The Graduate um, (laughs) had that moment when I think, encapsulated,
2: I think it was 69, that movie, and what was that famous scene with Dustin Hoffman where, I can't remember the actor's name, but what about the future? And he said, plastics. Yeah, plastics. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody, you and I, was that was kind of humorous. It didn't get past <laughs> us. But I understand this, that the generation now, if they watch that, they'll just go, wow, that's probably something I should think about. <laughs> you know? And it's just in context
0: of, of how you yeah hear things. Uh, yeah. It was a very, as yes. well. It was. It's a very funny moment, and at least it was to me a very. Yeah, time. exactly. Well, the movie came out at the very end of '67. Oh, it did okay. Yeah, and I, went, I remember taking my girlfriend of, of the day to see it, and yeah, know I found this this very funny echo because I interviewed a woman uh, last December who wrote a book about the making of the movie, and um, uh, it was a. Uh, uh, it's a story of this uh, young man played by Dustin Hoffman, who's just graduated from college and is kind of. And is totally lost and aimless. And I felt, uh, facing graduation a year off, I felt I was facing aimlessness and and that. So uh, I felt 50 years later, I was in the same situation as I was. My retirement had been announced back in May or June, and I was about to retire in January. And everybody asked, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So I felt like Benjamin in... um, in, in The Graduate and instead of anyone saying plastics I found people saying podcasts you've got to do podcasts alright <laughs> so that was the <laughs> I'm the going to ask podcast. you that but since you brought it up what are you going to be doing now? I'm not sure I'm, I mean I'm doing little bits of things and and going to take part in panels right now and uh, and doing household chores and, and um, uh, everyone assures me I'll be bored to tears uh, uh, six months out have you found that yet? no I haven't found that okay. yet at all I've sort of enjoyed the idea of uh, of well, I've noted, you know, if you'd asked me uh, three months ago when I was still hosting All Things Considered, um, is the job? Uh, is it? Does it produce tension? Are you? Are you at all? You know? Are you nervous about this job? I would say not. For years and years, I've been doing this for a long time, and everything has happened. I I, uh, I feel very comfortable in the studio, on the microphone, on the air. No, no big deal. Then I retired. And I began to live without having to get up early enough to read a couple of papers before I. What time did you left. get up in the morning? Oh, I used to always get up by six or six thirty or something like that, and and um, I still would have two actual newspapers delivered to the house and start reading. Maybe read uh, most of one on a stationary bike while watching a news program and listening to us on the radio and uh, getting into work for a morning meeting and, and trying to stay on top of things and. Uh, Since the program begins at uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern Time, uh, when we kicked it up to that hour, one hour earlier than it had been 25 years ago, um, lunch was reduced to a very unceremonious, quick uh, noontime meal at my desk. Um, Had to be in the studio at quarter to, you know, 4 to start doing the... uh, what we'd call the opens and returns the the little announcements at the start of each half hour, and suddenly um, I could wake up whenever I wanted to wake up. Uh, I didn't have to do the uh, set of stationary bike and weight exercises that I had improvised on time, fast enough to get out on time. I could I could do it in a very leisurely fashion and uh, um, talk about what's in the paper with my wife in the morning and. Um, and I think after I stopped working for a month or so, I felt uh, remarkably less tense. I mean, I, I, didn't, I hadn't realized how dictated by the job I had been for so many years. And the things that I read were not being read on assignment because I'd have to interview the author next week. So I didn't have to think about what am I going to ask about this, uh, this book um, I didn't have this stack of papers that I would have every night to read through and prepare for interviews the following day so uh, uh, actually I think I only discovered how how much my life was dominated and shaped by my work after I stopped working mm-hmm. I, I didn't notice it then so right it, you were in um, touched on that a little bit.
2: London between 1979 and 1983 and two major things happened then. The hostage crisis and also Ronald Reagan got elected which was kind of the Reagan revolution. Yeah. How was it viewing what was going on here at that time from there in London?
0: Well, uh, the, the, first, um, the, the hostage crisis was viewed very differently from London and from Germany where I would be doing uh, a, a good deal of reporting as it turned out. Um, I, th- I think it was the German leader Helmut Schmidt, who was a very brilliant guy who who spoke English uh, more articulately than a great many American po- politicians, to be honest, and uh, recorded, uh, I remember he recorded a Beethoven trio playing piano. He was quite gifted, a very brilliant guy. And uh, Schmidt had told people, America doesn't have a hostage crisis, it has a media crisis. And that, um, that back in America, where we were not... Walter Cronkite, I think, was counting the days that the hostages had been in captivity. He just read and his book. and ABC had yes. started a program which later became Ted Koppel's uh, Nightline, which was based on the hostage crisis. And the European view was, you crazy Americans, uh, you're prolonging this thing by giving the Iranians uh, the, the, all this importance. That you, You've turned their hostage-taking into uh, the most important thing facing Americans. They're going to keep them forever. You know they'll, uh, and, and if you want to get these people out, stop, stop turning it into a test of American uh, will because this, the Iranians will test your will. You know, they'll do it. Uh, which was not the perspective that I think pe- people in America were getting. Oddly enough, um, when the hostages were released on the day of Reagan's uh, inauguration, I mean the, the Iranians waited until uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency was done, uh, before um, before releasing them, onto the new president, which you know, seems odd that Reagan would be the one to be well-treated by Iran. Uh, I was, along with the rest of the American press corps based in uh, in London and other European cities, sent to Frankfurt-Wiesbaden to be there for the hostage return. Uh, so there were you know, a few dozen American journalists. I went over with a friend, uh, who was then the Washington Post uh, correspondent in London, Len Downey, who later became the editor of the paper, the executive editor of the paper? He was a great guy. Uh, since I was based in Wiesbaden, where the hostages would all be sent to a, um, a hospital, uh, for Frankfurt Airport, uh, w- we had use of <laughs> we had use of a Peter Jennings' hotel room. Jennings had led a whole ABC crew. He was based in London in those days, and he was a friend. and His wife reported for us, and she was Katy Martin was then his wife, and and uh, she was reporting for NPR. So um, that was our base of operations in 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 Frankfurt. But the group that that was sent to Frankfurt of American journalists to cover the hostage return from from Tehran were people who had. Who were the who were completely removed from the entire emotional experience of the hostage crisis because we'd been living in London or maybe in Paris or, or Berlin or someplace where the attitude was there's this terrible thing happening American diplomats are uh, are taken hostage and the Americans should probably shut up about it and and uh, they could probably negotiate their release if, if they didn't let the Iranians know how pained how agonized they are about this every day so um it was an odd experience of hearing American journalists do their best to get in sync with what Americans thought was going on, but we were probably the most the most unrepresentative group of Americans to be talking about it uh it was very uh, uh it was very exciting and um i did i i was alone uh Kati was there, but she was um we were both working the same hours and I remember uh being enormously impressed by um uh what the Washington Post did there, two reporters, and, and I conked out, I went to sleep. This is what a columnist too. there was a photo op of returned hostages who I think all appeared on Good Morning America, and, uh, and a famous picture was taken, and that had satisfied as the scoop for ABC's uh, TV show. The newspaper guys had gone there, at this point I had to go to, I had to get some sleep, and instead of just seeing these people, they had interviewed them and gotten their stories of what had happened. They just couldn't use, they couldn't identify the stories by name. But the Post came up with a brilliant account the next day of many different tales of what it had been like to be a hostage in Tehran, which the the same TV network that had gotten these people together, the point of their being in one place to be on a TV show, the TV, they had none of that. None of that. So yeah, they didn't yeah, l- lack of enterprise. I think if there wasn't gonna be somebody telling the story with a picture it wasn't wasn't worth it. this is all yeah, they got. Interesting. So that was the return of the hostages. Um Reagan, um Reagan was a foreshadowing, I guess, of what the Trump election has been like in, in Europe and elsewhere, which was uh, Brits and Europeans felt that the, a crazy cowboy had been elected president of the United States. Uh, he was from the West Coast. He, he was probably much more concerned with the Pacific, they feared, than with, with the Atlantic Alliance. He was a cowboy. He, uh, uh, he was uh, uh, belligerent toward Russia and all this. So uh, it, it actually was quite remarkable when he came to London and impressed people a great deal. And more to the point, it was a very vital role for George H.W. Bush, the vice president, who was well known to European leaders, uh, to come and vouch for this new president. And he, he went a long way when I was in London to uh, allaying fears of the, uh, of the British establishment. I'll say one other thing that was happening there, which was interesting. The issue that I covered most in my four years in, in, um, in London was the big debate throughout Europe about whether to deploy intermediate-range missiles in NATO member countries. Uh, the NATO said the Soviet Union, as it was then, had installed a new class of missiles that based in Soviet Russia or Ukraine would not reach the U.S. They weren't ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, they were intermediate-range missiles. So they would reach places like Germany. And, um, Problem solved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, as you can you can imagine what the Germans thought about that. Yeah, and um, and the U.S. said, look, we have to match them step for step on the ladder of escalation, of the threats of deterrence, which, uh, in the in the strange view of the times, meant that the more nuclear weapons you had, the less the chance was of your ever using nuclear weapons. So, we had to have a U.S. class kind of a gun me, debate. That's right. (laughs) That's it. Uh, The only way to stop a bad guy with a missile. Um, So the the U.S. wanted to base these uh, cruise missiles and Pershing II missiles in uh, Germany and Italy and and Britain. And there developed huge anti-missile movements in Europe, uh, big uh, protests. And the question was, would those European governments stand by the Atlantic Alliance and say that even even though they had misgivings about the American leader, Reagan, uh, even though they were a little scared that it was getting more and more likely that if there were a nuclear war, the the weapons would be confined to, to their countries, they'd, they'd be used, that uh, the, the, the center-right position was maintaining the alliance is the most important thing, maintaining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the Western Alliance, checking Soviet... Uh, Power was most important. Let's stand by and and approve these deployments. As I say, there were enormous protests, and the real political fallout of that season of of protest um, was that they they tended to divide the center-left parties. That is, the British Labour Party, uh, already divided, became much more seriously divided between those who were uh, pro-Alliance, the Atlanticists, and people who felt... We don't want to hitch our wagon to these loopy Americans who have strange ideas. And, and so the beneficiary of this debate was the right, was the Conservative Party. In Germany, same thing. The Social Democrats were so divided. So the
2: seeds of what we're going through now where were kind of planted, you believe, yes. in that, that yes. time. Yes, and, th-
0: and I think that when you have very often, um, uh, very often when people on the left uh, you know, p- uh, protest and make their case and they are convinced that they're the better way of taking down the right. The division on the left, very often, empowers the right. That's Robert Siegel, retired host of National
2: Public Radio's All Things Considered. I would like to more than emphasize what he said at the end of the interview, and that is, divisions on the left empowers the right.
3: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. If you have questions, comments, or topics that you would like to suggest for future shows, call Paul at 206 714-8154. That's 206-714-8154.
2: Mike Flynn has joined me, and he was the publisher and editor of the Puget Sound Business Journal for a Quarter Century. Since he's had so much involvement in our community, I wanted him to weigh in on the homeless crisis. That seems to be the biggest topic going on in this community right now. What is your take on what's going on with the uh, homeless situation in Seattle and in the area and how the Seattle City Council and the mayor are handling that?
1: Well, the interesting thing is uh, one of my friends, I was talking to her last night, and she said, don't you have any viewpoint on what's going on? And I said, yeah, why? And she said, well, how come you don't do a column on it? And I realized there's so many pieces of it. Uh, as you, if you paid attention, you probably know that they now, the city now proudly says they took care of 1500 homeless with their 50 million last year. So you divide that, that's $10,000 per homeless person. Uh, if we use that as a model, who knows what we could do if you could do 12 homeless people at a time, that's a hundred thousand dollars. Could you build something for that? And we also, now that we know that uh, Savant legal tab for her mouth is 258 million, I mean, 258,000. Me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, we now know that since we have a $10,000 figure per homeless person, she has cost 25 homeless people, uh, a place to live with their mouth.
2: <laughs> well, I think you are capturing uh, frustration among many people I talk to and myself are just these sorts of issues. It just looks like they are not coming up with a holistic approach to this.
1: There are apparently twice as many non-Seattle homeless people as there were 10 years ago. If we create a place that is kind and and accommodating to all of Seattle's homeless will also become the home and the targeted home of thousands of homeless males who are in the country and nobody has talked about how do we prevent that.
2: I'm not a big fan of Mayor Ed Murray. Never, I wasn't really regarded even the severity of the charges against him later. But I did think he did a really good job early on in his term with that fifteen dollar minimum wage tax or minimum minimum wage. Yeah. yeah, yeah and you know, yeah. he pulled together people from various backgrounds and things, different interests. He said, Hey, you got thirty days or sixty days, whatever it was, to come up with a recommendation. They did what politics is meant to be, tug back and forth, some win, some you lose, and they came up with something.
1: He understood the legislative process, having been a legislative leader, and it's a give and take in the legislature, and that's what you bring to government leadership. Why don't you you think we we
2: we would take that blueprint and bring people around the table, give them two or three months, and come out with, here's the 10 points we're going to do, and at the end, this is what we hope to accomplish. I think that's what people are looking for. What do you think?
1: I think if the the community, excluding city council, came up with a panel of 10 acknowledged people, even if they weren't acknowledged by the city council, to say, here is the plan we're handing to the city council after due deliberation, and this is what we expect to see happen or you're all going to be gone. Are you volunteering to chair this group of 10 people? No, no, no. There needs to be somebody who is immersed in key aspects of Seattle today, and I'm not. I'm a Bellevue fan. Intelligent people who know how to do things have said, come up with a plan, and then let's figure out what it costs. Don't give us a dollar figure and say we'll come up with a plan after that. (laughs) That's not the way anybody does anything. Right, and so what is blocking that? There's all kinds of money to be had from big business here. So don't lean on us about coming up with a plan first. Give us the money and we'll solve it. That's Mike Flynn, the former
2: publisher and editor of the Puget Sound Business Journal.
3: Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input pre flight checklist. That's pre flight checklist. Exercise
1: is an unmitigated failure. We've been pushing exercise in this country for sixty-five years and it doesn't work. Diets don't work, exercise programs don't work. In blue zones where people are living the longest, they live in environments that every time they go to work, to friend's house or out to eat, it occasions a walk. They have gardens. And their houses are can deconvenient, their life, so there isn't a button to push for yard work and housework and kitchen work. They're nudged into movement every 20 minutes. And if we want to fight this obesity um, problem in our country, we'll take the focus off of trying to hound people to exercise more, which doesn't work anyway, even if you went to the gym every day, which people don't. We've got to engineer it back into our lives, and there are ways to do that. That's
2: Dan Butner of Blue Zones.
4: Because here's what's gonna happen. Mueller will request an interview. Trump will say no. Mueller will then subpoena him. Trump will say, go fish. (laughs) It goes to the Supreme Court. They're partisan now too. We learned that in Bush versus Gore. But say they do the right thing and order him to honor the subpoena. And he still says no. What do we do then? Call Dog the Bounty Hunter? That's when the same experts will be saying a president has never defied the Supreme Court. Stop telling me he'll never do that. He always does that. (laughs) It's not normal, it's not an argument that works on Donald Trump. If the Supreme Court rules against him, he'll attack them. Just like he did the FBI and the Justice Department. The Supreme Court will be the new deep state enemy and their rulings will be fake news. (laughs) This year, When President Xi of China made himself president for life, Trump said, President for life, I think it's great. Maybe we'll have to give that a shot someday. (laughs) A month later, he suggested he should have four terms like FDR. People say he's joking about this stuff, but when has Trump ever told a joke? Maybe the reason he keeps saying he wants to be president for life is because he wants to be president for life.
2: That's from New Rules on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, our host and producer. I would like to thank Robert Siegel and Mike Flynn for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. And of course, Bill Maher as well. Now, Voices airs on Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. and is repeated Wednesday mornings at 8.30 a.m. If you would like to talk to me about, let's say, a future show, if there are topics you would like me to address, I can certainly listen to what you have to say, or maybe you want to be a guest on the show. I'm certainly open to that possibility. My phone number is 206-459-5536, 206-459-5536. Have a great rest of the week.